Today we're reading from Psalm 57. To the choir master, according to do not destroy, a victim of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge in the shadow of your wings. I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I will cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are like spears and whose arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, in the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast. O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations, for your steadfast love is great to the heavens and your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, in the heavens, and let your glory be over all the earth. Be seated, please. It's my absolute wonderful pleasure to be able to bring the Word of God to you today. Uh, I'm thankful that Rob asked me to be here, you know, kind of give the old man a chance to stand up and stumble around a little. Uh, it's not really the age, it's the mileage, you know. And I've got a lot of mileage, and some of the roads weren't paved, so it's rough. Uh, my wife said to me, she said, you know, sooner or later, they're, they're not going to ask you anymore, because, you know, you're, you're getting old, and you're not as sharp as you used to be. And I said, well, neither are you. And <laughs> just for the record, but even if I'm acting crazy, even if I do have dementia, nobody will know because they'll say, he's always acted that way. <laughs> so I got that going for me, and I'm glad. You know, I, I, some of you don't remember what the church was like when Rob took over. We had been through some hard times, and I was worried for Rob, but he, the Lord has blessed him greatly. He's done a magnificent job, and I'm just proud to be able to be here and deliver the word. That's right. Let's, let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for all that you have done for us. We're thankful for your goodness and your kindness and your graciousness, and we pray that you will be with us today. Bless us and help us and speak to us. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I have a, a confession to make. It's a little embarrassing. I like to watch pro, I like to watch professional wrestling. I hope you don't think less of me now. Probably because my dad didn't want me to watch it. That whenever he would leave on Saturday morning, I would watch professional wrestling, and I still do. Not just Saturday morning anymore. And when I was a kid, the, I, 
you, you know, we all liked, I was, I was hoping I was going to grow up to be a professional wrestler, but that growth spurt never quite came through. So, but I wanted, I wanted to be like the guy who I thought was the greatest wrestler ever, Dusty Rhodes. Some of you may remember Dusty. He was the greatest talker the wrestling world's ever known. But he had this one really, really amazing promo in the Midwest Territory called Hard Times. And in it, he talks about, he says, Ric Flair, you put hard times on the dream, baby. And it, it was like you began to be sucked in as a kid. I remember being sucked in. And he's putting his hand up to the camera and says, all you folks out there that are with me, put your hand. My hand is touching your hand. And together, we're going to bring this back for all the people in America. It was almost like an evangelistic experience. He said, Ric Flair, you have put hard times on the Dusty Road family. In this passage today, it's, it's the story of King Saul putting hard times on David when he didn't deserve it. You know from reading the text that there's a superscription to this psalm. Not all psalms have them. The superscription is what's at the beginning telling you a little bit about the psalm. Now, these were written at a different time, so there's no sense in which the superscription was written by the same person who wrote the psalm, but it's an attempt to tell us a little bit about the psalm. And in this case, it tells us that this psalm was written while David was in a cave. Now, David, he was in two different caves in 1 Samuel, one in chapter 22 and one in chapter 24. I, I think that chapter 24 is the one where this is going on. What has happened is, you remember, if you remember anything about David, you remember the story of David and Goliath. And David was not a little tiny kid at the time. He was probably 18, 19 years old. He, nobody will fight Goliath. He comes out, fights him, chops his head off, carries his head around, and there's a statue of it back there. And you can't see it from here, but ask me after, I'll tell you where it is. David's standing on Goliath's head. It's a great statue. And it, it, David was an amazing hero for the people of Israel. And all of a sudden, King Saul started to say, I don't like this much. Because people started singing, Saul has slain his thousands. Saul loved that. But David, his ten thousands. Saul did not like that. And Saul started to get really, really jealous about that and decided that he would kill David. And so David ran off and hid in a cave. And in 1 Samuel, we learn that there were a bunch of other people who gathered with David. They were the outcasts. They were the people that were not the great fighters in the army. And so David had maybe three or 400 outcasts, and Saul had 3,000 of his greatest warriors coming toward him. And David is hidden in that cave. And he knows that if they find out where he is, they are all going to be destroyed. But a, a crazy thing happens. Saul, the king, comes into the cave by himself, and the King James says he, he covered his feet. It's a euphemism for uh, going to the bathroom. And while that was happening, David snuck up beside him and cut off a piece of his robe to show Saul that he could have killed him, but he didn't, because he didn't want to raise his hand in trying to harm someone whom God had put in power. He went back to the cave, and he realized that the only hope he had was not in Saul, not in himself, not in the people that were around him, but the only hope he had 
was in the God of the cave. Sometimes when things are going well, it's easy for us to believe in God. It's easy for us to think about what God has done for us and remember all those great things God has done for us. But when things are not going so well, it's not as easy to remember. We think maybe God forgot about us, right? I mean, we remember all those passages in the Scripture that say things like, the very hairs of our head are numbered. Not that impressive in my case, but in some of your cases, it's very impressive. You think, if God knows that detail about me, He must know everything. And then all of a sudden, when things start happening to us, we say, I wonder if there was some bushy-headed guy somewhere else that He was having trouble with. Now, I'm, I'm, I don't know if God's going to help me or not. That's not what David did. David, in this case, depended on the God of the cave. And everyone who's here today should depend on the God of the cave. Depending on the God of the cave will benefit you in three ways. David lays them out for us in this psalm, and I'll lay them out for you this morning. First, depending on the God of the cave gives us refuge from our enemies. You notice in verse 1 that, that David says, Be merciful to me, O God, for in you my soul takes refuge. There is no refuge in anyone else except for God. And David tells us how we get that refuge in the next couple of verses. He says we get this refuge, first of all, because God hides us. You notice in the first part of the first verse, the text says that you, in the shadow of my wings, I will take refuge. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge. It's this image of a, a, a bird protecting her young by spreading out her wings, right? It's, we, see, we see that in the New Testament. Remember when Jesus stands in front of Jerusalem and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you together like chicks? But you would not. Jesus wants to spread out his wings over those people, but they would not. Not only does, this, uh, does God hide us, but God also hears us. You notice in verse 2, David says, I'm going to cry out. I cry out to God. We have a God who not only speaks to us through the Scripture, but we also have a God who listens to us. And that's an exciting thing, to think that the God of the universe listens to what we have to say. That's incredible. Not only does God hide us, not only does God hear us, but God also helps us. Notice in the third verse, He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples me. The text is very clear here that David is saying, I am not going to be saved by myself. I'm not going to be saved by the army. I'm not going to be saved by King Saul. The only hope that I have in this situation is God himself. That's that's all that he has. One of the things that you'll notice in this psalm is the number of times that the word, the term in heaven, different translations, some translated in the sky or something like that, in the air, but it's literally it means from heaven. And that is that David expects his help to come from heaven and he expects his worship to go to heaven. And that's what he's doing there. He's saying, I know that at the end of the day, I have no hope. I know that at the end of the day, my only, only, only hope of ever surviving is in God. That's not the only thing that David says to us. He doesn't just say that trusting in the God brings us refuge from our enemies, but he says trusting in the God of the cave brings us rebuke for our enemies. You see that in verse 3. He says, rebuke those who trample on me. 
Very, very interesting what's going on here. He says, they will be put to shame. You notice that in the second part of the third verse. He said, God will send out his steadfast love and faithfulness. That's for David. But for those people who are harming him, he will put to shame him who tramples on me. God is saying to David, don't worry. I know it looks bad. I know it looks hopeless, but I'm in charge. I will put to shame those who are trampling you. Not only will he put them to shame, but David realizes that they are the ones who will ultimately suffer. He says this in verse 6. You see it in verse 6. He says, they have set a trap for my steps. My soul was bowed down, sort of uh, almost depressed by all the things that were going on. They set a trap for him. But he says, look what happened. They set a trap for my step. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. They fell into the pit that was made for David. They are the ones who ultimately suffer. There's a really interesting grammatical point in the Hebrew text of this psalm. It's a, it's a tense, a verbal tense. And the tense usually means something that has already happened, like I ate. Instead of something that's going to happen in the future, I will eat. And what ha- in this text, this, what we see in verse 6 They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it. Literally, and some translations will say this, literally says they have dug a pit and they have already fallen into it. But realize that it hasn't already happened. They're going to fall into it. And some translations will say they shall fall into it. And what's going on here is that the event of God redeeming David from those that are against him is so certain that it's as if it already happened. And there are, there are verbs like this in the New Testament as well, where the event, is so, event in the future is so certain that it can be spoken of as if it already happened. God of the cave brings us refuge from our enemies. He brings us rebuke for our enemies. And finally, the third thing that the God of the cave brings us is relief after our enemies. He brings that through worship. You'll notice there's a change in style between verse 6 and verse 7. It's, I'm in trouble, I'm in trouble, I'm in trouble, God help me, up to verse 6. Then in verse 7, all of a sudden, it's, I love you, God, I praise you, I want to worship you, I want to do everything for you because you are the one who has been here for me. So, we have relief through this worship. Confident worship despite the place. Notice that David is in a cave, he's got all kinds of problems, King Saul is chasing him, for no fault of his own. David had done exactly what he was supposed to do. He had done exactly what King Saul wanted him to do. He had done exactly what God wanted him to do. And yet, in spite of all that, here he is in a cave fearing for his life. And yet, David turns the corner and recognizes that fearing for your life is not what God wants us to be, not the place where God wants us to hold. That's not who we are. We are people who know that our lives are in the hands of God Almighty. There was contagious worship and confident worship, despite those circumstances, that David had been unfairly attacked. David had only outcasts for his army. You remember somebody else like that, don't you? Somebody who had only outcasts and people didn't care much for, didn't have a lot of friends. That was our Lord, who was also chased down 
and eventually murdered. And yet, because of the grace of God, that murder brought us salvation. That murder brought to us the ability to have our sins cleansed. And that's the thing that means everything to David. That when we have been attacked and we have been harmed and we have been spoken ill about by all kinds of people, our hope is not in revenge. Our hope is in the Lord. There's a famous Old Testament scholar named Walter Brueggemann, who's really good on the Psalms. And Brueggemann says, he says, a person can do only one of three things when they have been treated badly. He said, the first thing is, they can get a gun and go try to kill the person who treated them badly. Not a good, not a good choice, generally. The second thing is that they can try to ignore it. And then when you can't sleep, and you start either gaining or losing weight, and everything seems like it's wrong, you know that you really haven't ignored them. So Brueggemann says you can take care of it yourself, you can try to ignore it, or there's a third thing. And that is the third thing, is you can turn it over to somebody else. Freud would say turn it over to the psychotherapist. But the Bible says turn it over to Jesus. That's the message of this psalm. When we face difficult times in our life, when people are mean and hateful to us, when we feel like we're in a cave about to lose our lives, God is there with us. I was thinking this week about a, uh, a trip that I took with my father when I was 12 years old. Uh, my father was older when I was born. He was 15 when I was born, so he was like 62 or 63, and he thought it would be a good idea to take a hyperactive 12-year-old to a pastor's conference. And so I, I was just glad to go because we hadn't really taken a trip like that. It was my first time riding an airplane, and I thought this would be great. Well, it was mainly sitting like this for hours and hours and hours a day, and I was just trying my best. And it, time after time, as I tried to listen to these people, it was sort of a fundamentalist conference, and they were mean, and they were hateful, and they were ungracious, and they, I just didn't like it. I don't want to be that kind of a person. I don't want to be the person that says, you're wrong, you're awful, you're terrible. I, I, I want to be the guy who says, God's not mad at you. He loves you. And so I didn't like the speakers much. And then on the last night, I'm hoping maybe this will just be short. That's what I was going for because at 12. And this guy came out. His name was B.R. Lakin. He was at, at 12. I thought he was an old man. He was probably 50. I don't know. But he, he came out, and he was so much different from anybody else I'd heard the rest of the time. He was funny and he was gracious, and he was kind, and he was loving, and he presented a God that was like that, a God that was kind and gracious and loving and encouraging. And I saw this almost transformation take place across the crowd as all these people who were mad and angry and mean suddenly became this sort of need, so desperately needed encouragement. And I know that some of you today so desperately need encouragement. And I'm giving it to you because you can trust in the God of the cave. 
The last line of that sermon when I was 12 years old by B.R. Lakin, I still remember it. It's crazy that I would remember that long ago. Crazy that I remember Dusty Rhodes, I guess, too. But I remember this last line. And I mean, he had ripped that crowd apart by that time. He was, he killed. And the last line was, he said, listen, whenever somebody's kicking you from behind, that's God's way of showing you that you're still out in front. We don't have any hope if we don't have any God, but we do have a God and we do have hope and he is with us even in the cave. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for all that you've done for us. Thank you for your goodness, your kindness. I pray that you will take these words, you will use them powerfully as poor as they are, Use them for your glory. Encourage everyone who's here today, anyone who doesn't know what it's like to have their sins forgiven by Jesus Christ, I pray that you will draw them to yourself right now. And it is in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.